I'm not in the habit of consulting lawyers before I do what needs to be done. I see this ship is impeccably maintained, every bolt and clasp and fitting in place, everything stowed in regulation Starfleet order. Five minutes on this ship and I know precisely what I'm looking at. You are Starfleet to the core. The Vintage Picard Podcast. It's um, discussion, analysis, debate about Star Trek Picard. All right, good. It's really quite exciting, actually. Very good, fine. I'll listen. Engage. Welcome, Picard people. To, I don't know. I, it's a thing I'm trying. We'll see how it goes. Welcome to episode four of Vintage Picard, our wonderful, well, at least wonderfully ambitious podcast about Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Beyond. We welcome you here. We are so glad you could join us for another episode. We are so very happy to have you here and so very happy to have the opportunity to talk about another episode of Star Trek Picard. But before we do that, we should introduce ourselves so you know who we are, especially if you're a new listener. And if you are a new listener, welcome to the fun. I am Gary McComiskey, longtime Star Trek fan. And of course, I have my co-host here. Hello, I'm James Sejazi. How you doing, James? I'm doing pretty good. Excited to uh, discuss the third episode of Star Trek Picard. I am also. But before we jump into that third episode, I have a little bit of news. Report. A little bit of news. I don't, that- I, I'm, I'm trying stuff. It's, the, it's a brand new podcast. I haven't found a, a groove yet. I'm trying stuff. Lay it on us. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so as you know, particularly if you listened to our first episode where we kind of did the run up to this series, but if you are a general follower of the Star Trek franchise and the goings on and, and the kind of Star Trek renaissance that they are experiencing right now, you know that they are resurrecting the brand on CBS All Access and have uh, developed or are in development for a whole bunch of series, new Star Trek series. And one that I honestly, I miss this and shame on me, but one series that is in development is a series centered on Section 31. Ooh, nice. Uh, well, James, you you may want to hold your interest because I know how you feel about this. It's actually seemingly about the Section 31 that is a big part of the second season of Discovery. Oh, all right. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't know <laughs> if you were aware of that, but Section 31 actually plays a very large role, a key plot driving role in the second season of Discovery. And so it is uh, apparently going to be helmed or at least uh, have a a large part played by Michelle. I'm going to butcher her last name. I've never actually heard it pronounced. Yo, yo, you, yeah. I don't, I'm so sorry. I don't know how you, the woman who played Giorgio on Discovery, Philippa Giorgio. 
So she is going to be a big part of this series. And in fact, it is supposed to start filming very soon. And filming is scheduled to run into November. So, you know, I don't know what the post-production timeline is on something like that. But figure it'll debut around this time or a little later in 2021. If, you know, everything goes on track. So that's one more series in the Star Trek verse to look forward to. If you enjoy such things. Thank you. And I appreciate the fair warning too, because obviously if, uh, again, if, if you've listened to this podcast in the past, Gary and I tell you about our uh, fandom of Star Trek uh, and our love of the franchises. And my personal favorite is Star Trek Deep Space Nine, obviously after the original series. But um, that's where, yeah, Gary was smart enough to know that that's where my mind would go immediately for Section 31 because of that great connection they had with that Deep Space Nine series and the actor who was one of the key focal points of Section 31 in Deep Space Nine was indeed the same actor that played Death in uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. So uh, I apologize. I don't know the actor's real name. But uh, anyway, anybody who could play Death and somebody so interesting and intriguing in Deep Space Nine is always aces in my book. You realize this is the second week in a row we've talked yes. about Bill and Ted's bogus journey on this podcast. I'm sorry. I keep dragging down the pot. I don't know why you have me on at all. But anyway, I apologize and I take full responsibility for that. So if you need to throw me in the brig, I'll go in there willingly. You know, the Time Bureau or, or whatever they call them, the, the Bureau of Temporal Affairs is going to come and uh, chastise us if we keep talking about Bill and Ted. I take full responsibility, so I, I will I will fall on that sword. It's my fault, so please spare Gary. Yeah, no, it's fine. But so here, here's one thing I want to talk about Section 31 just very briefly. If I'm not, I, I and again, I don't know what this series is going to be about apart from the fact that it is focused on Section 31. If it is just focused on the Discovery era Section 31, I'll watch it, but... I'm not super excited about it because I don't know. We'll see if, however, they make it kind of an anthology series about the history of section 31 or the progression of section 31 through the years. And they may not want to do that because, you know, nothing, nothing kills the mystique of a super secret organization, like telling you every little thing about it. However, section. Uh, all right. Real talk time quickly before we jump into the podcast about Picard. So here's my thing on section 31. When it started off, it was a really interesting concept. The idea that for all of its bright and aspirational ideals, the Federation had this kind of super secret black ops organization that did its dirty work and had since its inception. That is worth exploring. It got a little campy towards the end of DS9, I will admit, but the idea of section 31 was something that was always very interesting. When they went back to that well in Enterprise and kind of talked about the origins of Section 31, that I thought was kind of dumb, honestly. I mean, I, well, <laughs> that that could be used to describe most of the run of Enterprise, frankly, but it got better at the end. It got better, but that's neither here nor there. That Section 31... I'm not that keen on revisiting, but you know, whatever, whatever. 
This section 31 in Discovery is all, well, I believe the kids say grimdark. And, you know, as is all of, or not all of modern Star Trek, but much of modern Star Trek, especially Discovery. So that, if, if again, if that's what this series is focused on, I will watch it, but I could do without it. But we'll see. I won't prejudge it because I don't know anything about it. But uh, do you, before we move on, James, do you have any opinions on just Section 31 in general as an organization or as an organization as it's been presented in Star Trek? I love the number. And uh... yes, (laughs) sure. We're both Mets fans, James and I, if we haven't mentioned that already. So uh, Mike Piazza, Mets Hall of Fame catcher, war number 31. So if, if you're not caught up, now you're caught up. Thank you. Yes. And, and. As again, uh, we will get into the Picard series soon enough, but I I like the correspondence it has with the Romulan uh, secrecy and things. But it just kind of makes sense, too, because in realism, that when you're dealing with governments and and other entities and whatnot, you you probably need something that, you know, like Area 51, it's kind of based on. If, if you believe in that or if you don't believe in that with government cover-ups with uh, UFOs and things, it just kind of makes sense and it's logical. So obviously, Mr. Spock's my guy. So along those lines, I, I think it's fascinating to, again, borrow from Mr. Spock. I, I loved it. I, I think it was really good in Deep Space Nine. I don't recall the Enterprise attempt to discover or, or go into Section 31. So uh, again, a lot of Enterprise I forgot with the exception of Jolene Blaylock. But anyway, I like it. I I think it's fascinating. And hopefully that's something that they'll capture in the new series. I think, and I haven't watched Enterprise in a long time, so I can't swear to this. I think the uh, security officer, Malcolm, I think Uh. he was like a secret plant for that. Like he was secretly working for Section 31 because they had some kind of blackmail over him or something. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, I don't know. But yeah, with the Deep Space Nine, that was just so amazing, especially with the complexity of uh, the character of Odo and where his allegiance was and how Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien came up with that plot to, uh, to take down and, and find the, to save Odo and, uh, and, and, and the Link and all that stuff. So I, I just really love it. And again, I, I do, I love that actor. Uh, he was also in um, Shawshank Redemption as well, mm-hmm. but uh, just... It, I thought they did a great job with it in Deep Space Nine. One of the many reasons why I love that series so much. The secret, like secret organization thing that, you know, comparison that you made with the Romulans, that actually makes a lot of sense. They have the Tal Shiar. The Cardassians had the Obsidian Order. Apparently the Federation had Section 31. Do you think at some point we're going to find out that the Klingons had a uh, comparable organization? Or do you think that their culture is just so like crazy out front warrior, like Rambo, you know, centric that they would have no use for that kind of skunk works organization? Initially, I was definitely thinking the latter, but they do have a cloaking device. So, yes, I, I with that. Just one reason of a cloaking device, I would think that they would have their version of Section 31. Didn't they steal it from the Romulans? Um, see, this is this is like deep Star Trek canon that I'm not <laughs> super familiar with, but I think there's some, like, I don't know. I think at some point it's either implied or stated in some, like, secondary source that the Klingons stole their cloaking technology from the Romulans. That again makes sense. That that 
runs with the uh, what a Klingon would do. Exactly. Forceful. Take stuff. Dominate. And, yeah. uh, you know, today's a good day to die. So that makes sense. That's consistent with the Klingons. And any advantage you could get in war or sports or whatever the case is, you want to you want to jump on. So uh, with that aspect, I would think that, yes, uh, initially looking at the Klingons on the surface, it's they're up front. They're warriors. They're noble. But in terms of war, like they say, you know, there's no rules in war uh, that maybe they would need to have any sort of technical advantage or even the playing field. So that would make sense if they would bother to have a, a version of Section 31 and stealing the cloaking device. All right. Well, you know what? As interesting of a topic as it is, it is not the topic of the day. And there are many, many months between now and the time when we will find out the answers to our questions. However, we don't have to wait nearly that long to talk about the next episode of Star Trek Picard because we've got it for you right now. So I hereby propose that we jump right into discussing season one, episode three, the end is the beginning. I could tell. How cryptic. <laughs> Very much so. I mean, that's that's like fortune cookie wisdom right there. <laughs> Do you think they still have fortune cookies in the future? I hope so. I would I'm, imagine. I mean, you could just you could just replicate one, right? Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to get over that there's no major league baseball in the future, but you and Ben Cisco. Yes. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so the episode opens with a a fairly quick montage reminding us of the events that led to Mars being blowed up. <laughs> so you got the defense grid turning on the planet, the ships, which I don't know if you caught this last week, James, when they first showed the Mars attack, but the ships were actually Federation ships. They, they, had, they were Starfleet ships. They had Starfleet logo on them. Oh. So one assumes that there were synths on board that co-opted the ships or that they were controlled remotely somehow. So uh, you got the, the satellites turning on the planet, the ships blowing everything up, Mars exploding, just real quick, and then a shot of the, the synth who we saw uh, hacking the system, like getting himself reprogrammed and then turning the gun on himself, which I think was a little bit of a reminder, which was also meant to be a little bit of foreshadowing, but I'll get to that later. So we kind of fade from that into San Francisco, Starfleet headquarters. And James, I got to hand it to you. You were right. I got to give this one to you. Starfleet headquarters, the year is 2385, 14 years ago, which puts the timeline of Star Trek Picard definitively in 2399. It is still technically the 24th century by a hair. So you win, my friend. Thank you, sir. But yeah, yeah, of course. So anyway, we, we see Jean-Luc Picard coming out of a building, which is, I guess, Starfleet headquarters, he just left a meeting with Starfleet Brass and he meets up with Raffi. He looks quite dejected. And uh, the, the first thing that jumps out at you is, besides the date and the setting, is the uniforms. So, again, Starfleet loves to change their uniforms. I don't know why they can't stick with a uniform for more than five years, but they just love to change their uniforms. These are the uniforms that we saw in the prequel comic. If you read that, they are the kind of the striped 
up at the top and angular stripes in the color of your discipline. They look kind of futuristic and kind of cool, but I don't know. I guess maybe it's just because I'm used to the the more solid colors or of the movie era, the the kind of more muted colors. These angular things look like they're trying too hard a little bit to me. They they look a little too much like they're trying to look futury. Although I will give them credit because I can't verbalize exactly why, but to me, the angularity of the uniforms was reminiscent of some of the future design choices from All Good Things. Ah, good point. I don't know. It, it evoked that for me without actually replicating what they had in All Good Things. So I don't know if, if that really makes a lot of sense, but for me, it, 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 it kind of it fit. Well, so far from what we've seen in the first few episodes, that's something that I personally appreciate and, and from the comic series, too, that you so well described is that they did their homework and they know that this is for the diehard Star Trek fan mm -hmm. and also for the casual Star Trek fan or even the casual sci-fi fan who's going to be introduced to Star Trek. So I do like that, that yes, that, that definitely makes sense. I do think it's all done on purpose and well thought out. And that's an excellent theory on your part. You know what I think it reminds me of the most the more I think about it, the logo, the Starfleet insignia and com mm. badges from the future. I think even though they were like straight lines, there was some kind of angularity to that. And I think that's what I'm thinking of. But again, I, I could be way off. It's been a while even since I've seen that episode. Well, to me, that's the uh, the Deep Space Nine uh, com badge. I, I know that it was also used in Voyager as well. And, uh, and I think a movie or two. But that's what I think of. I see that as the, the Deep Space Nine. No, so I'm not I'm not actually talking about that logo. I'm talking about in all good things, if I'm remembering ah, correctly, okay. instead of that trapezoid or oval behind the Starfleet logo, there was like a series yeah. of parallel lines. You're right. So I don't know. We're spending way too much time on this, but that's Sorry. that's what I thought of you. No, my fault entirely. So getting back to the plot. So uh the thing that Jean-Luc Picard and I'm going to call him Admiral because he is still Admiral at this point. Very good. The thing that Admiral Picard comes out and discusses with Raffi is their plan that they had put together in the wake of the Mars attack, because that is when this happens. And the plan that Picard had just finished presenting to the Starfleet High Command. And that is namely that even though the rescue fleet, the evacuation fleet was just destroyed at Mars, was decimated and cannot be rebuilt they can still effect the Romulan evacuation if they bring all of their retired ships out of mothballs and if they press reserve fleet officers into service to crew them. And even though it's pointed out that there would not be enough officers to do that, Rafi thinks, and presumably Picard also thought when he was presenting this, that they could supplement that with synth labor. However, we come to, well, we already knew this, but Rafi comes to be informed that all of the synths in the Federation have been dismantled. And honestly, I know the Federation and Starfleet are, are efficient, but, and I don't know how long exactly this meeting takes place after the Mars attack, but they worked quick. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many of these things existed, but just based on the number that were on the work crews on Mars and how many there must have existed to, you know, so thoroughly decimate that planet. 
I mean, wow. <laughs> that's a lot of that that's a lot of screwdrivers. That's <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Starfleet giveth, Starfleet taketh away. I mean, yeah. Well, we remember the Vorta talking about the mythical Starfleet engineers that, uh, you know, could do just about anything. I I guess it's not all talk. (laughs) But anyway, so synths are off the table, even though they think that's a ridiculous extrapolation because... To, to, to think that this one incident was indicative of all the synths. You know, something must have happened. This just this kind of thing doesn't just happen. Starfleet disagrees. They say there was a fatal operating system code error. And, you know, that's why they were all terminated. Rafi, for what it's worth, who you may remember is the foremost Romulan expert in the Federation, or at least in Starfleet. I don't know if... Anyway, um, she thinks that it was the Tal Shiar. Is it part of a Romulan plot? Now... Why the Tal Shiar would sabotage their own rescue effort, the effort to evacuate their own people, they have no good answer for that. But that's what she thinks. Why? I don't know. You know, it's it's a gut feeling, I guess. But no, alas, it is not to be. And Admiral Picard laments that he never dreamed that Starfleet would give in to intolerance and fear. But here we are. And so... He informs her that the play that he used to try and convince Starfleet, to try and force their hand to go with his plan, was he offered his resignation. Is it a ploy? Yes. He offered to resign. He never dreamed that they would actually accept it. He said, either you accept my plan or you accept my resignation. And they said, don't let the door hit you on the way out. So uh, Rafi is not surprised at his hubris, but she is disgusted by how it plays out. And then immediately she gets summoned to basically the principal's office and figures, okay, now I'm going to be fired. And so uh, then Jean-Luc Picard slumps into theme. (laughs) And uh, I submit, this is my personal opinion, the only reason he does not facepalm into theme is because he is uh, clutching his pad with both hands in a fit of despair. Good point. Although I, I, I didn't mention this when we covered it at the time, but he did, I believe, actually facepalm during his interview in the first episode. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was subtle, but, you know, very uh, meme aware, I think. <laughs> But anyway, so after the theme, uh, we cut back to Rafi's place, her her place in the desert, I guess, which is where we left off the previous episode. And Jean-Luc Picard is explaining that he badly needs a ship and a pilot because Starfleet turned him down and he needs to get out there and find Bruce Maddox. So we find out over the course of the conversation, Rafi tells him that She has been in a downward spiral for the last 14 years since she was forced to leave Starfleet. She is in really bad shape. She is seemingly somewhat envious of the fact that when Picard left, he was able to just kind of land on his feet back at his chateau and his vineyard in the bar, France. And, you know, just kind of live his life, maybe not happily, but quietly and in comfort. She, on the other hand, has had neither of those things. She has just been getting worse and worse and worse. And she, in fact, became 
a snake leaf junkie, which is, I guess, I, I don't know. She mentioned something about paranoia, which I guess is a, a pot analog, but, uh, you know, it's never explicitly stated. But she does, we see her clip some kind of leaf or flower off of a nearby plant and drop it in some kind of tube, which she then smokes. Uh, so I guess, you know, that's the implication. It is some kind of narcotic plant that she is ingesting, but that's neither here nor there. She's really, her main grievance is that in all the 14 years, she could have used a friend and Picard never once checked up on her to see how she was doing. She only hears from him now when he needs something. And that's, you know, not cool. That's a pretty lousy thing to do to a friend. And you can tell that they were friends because even 14 years ago, she would call him JL and John Luke. And, you know, they like not Admiral, they were on a first name basis. And so, you know, they were clearly very close. So the fact that he did not, in fact, check up on her in all these years was, you know, I guess a, a crippling blow to her, it, you know, or at least a large contributor in her downward spiral. I also have a question, too, that uh, obviously in past Star Trek movies and, and the series, the original series and so on and so forth, is that money was eliminated. So everybody mm -hmm. was just working for the good of humanity or for whatever the case was. So Sure. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. With the fact that Rafi was, I guess, dishonorably discharged, mm -hmm. I guess, from Starfleet, is that the reason why she would be living in such a desolate area in, in what is the future's equivalent of like a hole in the wall or, or a box or, you know, motorhome or something? I mean, I don't know. Like, so the economics of Star Trek are never really explicitly laid out in any of the series. And I'm sure that's by design. I mean, we've we've gotten these grandiose claims of there's no money in the future. Nobody wants her anything. But we don't really understand how that society functions on a granular level. You know, we've seen Grandpa Cisco with his restaurant and people can just come in and eat and they don't have to pay for it. They just, you know, get served and he's happy to do it. And that's great. But we don't know, you know, if anybody is kind of forced to have some kind of skill that contributes to society in order to remain part of it. So what I kind of supposed, what I surmised from Rafi's situation, she specifically mentions that she lost her security clearance and that is kind of made out to be the beginning of the end for her. Oh, hey, uh, the end is the beginning. That's the, that's the name of the episode. So that doesn't mean anything, but there we go. So, Here's what I kind of think. I think what happened is Rafi lost her security clearance and she had nothing to do. Like she, we talked last week about how Patrick Stewart was playing Picard with a loss of confidence and very frail and, and very kind of uh, lost. I think a similar thing happened to Rafi, except Instead of becoming frail and weak, she got paranoid and angry. 
I suspect that she withdrew herself from society voluntarily. And she's in that shack as much because she needs to be away from everybody. And she feels like she's not accepted in society as much as, you know, needing to be there. And so I I don't know that that's the fact, but that's what I think happened. I'll accept that. That's an excellent explanation. Thank you, sir. Yeah, well, that's that's what we're here for, James. <laughs> you know, idle, completely unfounded speculation. <laughs> that's how I live my life. Yeah. Uh, so from there, we then cut to the Borg cube, where we see somebody watching a security monitor of Soji's interactions in the surgical bay from the previous episode. And it is none other than Hugh. Hugh's back, James. Now, we talked about how he was going to be part of this series, and we didn't know how big of a role he was going to have, but he seems to have a pretty big role, yeah. <laughs> or at least an important role. I don't know how big it is going to be in terms of screen time, but he seems to be playing a pretty key role, and we'll get to that. But Hugh, who is deborgified and has kind of metal bits in his face, I guess, where the Borg implants used to be, which is a little odd, because when... Picard was transformed back from Locutus and when seven of nine was, you know, well, she was still seven of nine, but when she was mostly deborgified, they were able to remove in, in Picard's case, all traces in seven's case, almost all traces of the Borg implants. But for Hugh, he has these like ugly gray bits of metal splotched all over his face i I don't i don't really get it i don't think surgical techniques regressed in the last 20 years so i don't i uh, maybe we're dealing with a romulan hmo here maybe Uh. that's the problem (laughs) yeah plus he has a big scar where the uh the eye patch used to be or whatever Mm. you call that thing the ocular implant is what they're called sorry although he does have what looks like a, a pretty neat artificial eye yeah so you know I guess silver linings, <laughs> but, uh, so, so he, he comes down the hall and talks to Soji. He's very impressed at the way that she treated the XBs or the nameless as uh, they call. Now I was unclear on whether they called all of the Borg, the nameless or mm. just that particular species. I felt like it was that particular species of person that they deborgified or, or harvested, but, it really wasn't clear. I think, honestly, I think a lot of this series they're making intentionally vague and it can be a little frustrating at times. I'm certainly willing to go on the ride because I like the way the series is playing out by and large, but that is a minor grievance I have. They don't need to be so confusing. They, you know, they could dial it back a little bit. We are what we are, and we're doing the best we can. Anyway, so he's impressed with the way that she showed compassion for the nameless as they were harvesting him. And uh, so he's decided that that's kind of the, the deciding factor that is going to allow her. He is going to grant her permission to interview one of the XBs that she's been trying to interview one of the ex-Borg, somebody named Ramda, because Soji is different. She's not like all those other ones who are out to exploit the Borg, and that's all they want. She actually is interested in the research and the science and helping them. So, you know, I guess she's earned her shot. 
And the only thing we know about Ramda at this time is that she used to be the foremost Romulan expert in ancient Romulan mythology. So she's got that going for her. (laughs) James, we are 35 minutes into this podcast and I've only finished the first page of my notes. I need to pick this up. (laughs) Okay. The episode kind of goes quick after that. So I think we're in good shape. All right. It's all downhill from here. There you go. So. Back to Picard, he is apologizing profusely for not treating Rafi better. I think the implication is that he doesn't, he doesn't try to make an excuse, at least not overtly, but I think he's kind of leaning on the fact that he was also in a bad place emotionally and mentally. So he's kind of, I'm reading a lot into this, but I think he's trying to justify it to himself and she's not buying it. So she, she like, he, he's sorry. He's very tremendously sorry. She doesn't care. Like she's over him. She's done with his nonsense. And so the one very interesting thing that comes out of this conversation is the fact that back 14 years ago in the wake of the Mars attack, Rafi believed she had evidence that somebody very high up in Starfleet assisted or at least covered up the Mars attack. They, they were part of it and that, you know, never came out. Now that could be part of the reason why she got kicked out of Starfleet, that she told her theory to the wrong person and, you know, she lost her job for it. It's never expressly stated, but I think maybe we can read between the lines on that one. So basically she's done with Picard. She tells him to get lost but she also gives him a name of a pilot, the pilot that he's been looking for, who has a ship, somebody named Rios. And she tells him he'll be in contact. So even if she harbors this grudge bordering on hatred for him, she's still willing to help him out, which is a pretty solid move back to the Daystrom Institute in Okinawa, Japan. And we see that Dr. Agnes Girardi is listening to, an iPod, essentially a 24th century iPod. And uh, she is confronted very ominously by Commodore O, who is the Commodore that we saw in the previous episode, who was in cahoots with the secret Romulan Rizzo. And she is the head of Starfleet security. And she wants to know about Gerardi's interactions with Picard. Tell me everything, you know, <laughs> That's the implication. That's not, you know, the, 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 <laughs> that's implied. I believe the, the, the maniacal spooky laughter was off screen left for us to infer. <laughs> Moving back to the board cube. So <laughs> Hugh marches Soji down the hall to this interview room. This thing is going to happen now. We're doing this thing. You've been asking for it. I made a decision. It's happening now. So we go down the hall. He meets up with a guard outside of the, I guess, holding area for the people that include this uh, Ramda character that's going to be interviewed. And he says, all right, she's going to interview her. uh, Let her in. And the dude's like, well, not so fast. You're going to need some authorization for that. And Hugh is like, actually, I'm not because I'm in charge around here. And uh, which, you know, good for him. I, he, he does seem to have that role. He does seem to 
find himself in that role, doesn't he? After Descent, when they shot Lore and took him out of commission, who winds up in charge of his little board collective? Hugh. You know, how many years later? And now there's a whole big Borg reclamation project. And who winds up in charge of that? Hugh. I mean, he'd be running the Federation if the ex-Borg weren't, weren't so mistrusted and so blacklisted, basically. He's the kind of guy that just has power thrust upon him, it seems. <laughs> Whatever. It's nice to see Hugh again. I'm not going to jump on him too much. And so anyway, we find out that the people in this holding cell are the Romulan XBs, the only known Romulans who were assimilated by the Borg. And I find that a little hard to believe, but whatever, I'll go with it for the sake of the show. Anyway, so the Romulan XBs are the only ones who seem to have a real difficulty reacclimating to the world. Like they call them the disordered and they seem to be a little nuts. If I can use that term, <laughs> it's probably an insensitive term, but they, they clearly have something wrong with them. They remind me a little bit of the misfits from DS nine, the, uh, that Dr. Bashir helped the, the ones who were genetically modified and they, they, they all had really weird character traits, but I think what we're supposed to be reminded of and and the sense that we're supposed to get from this is like um, a mental hospital you know your your typical kind of tv mental hospital with people talking to themselves and and like weird tics and 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 drooling and you know making very frantic gestures at people who aren't there that kind of behavior and so we see ramda in there among them she is definitely one of them and Soji sits down to meet with her. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's now nighttime. Raffi gets a phone call from Jean-Luc Picard. And she's like, I don't know, she's clearly looking something up very intently. Picard interrupts her computer time and she grudgingly answers the call. And he's like, you're doing research, aren't you? And she says, no. And he's like, yeah, you are. Here's some more evidence. You can just here, look at that. All right. See you later. Bye. And <laughs> so they just kind of drop that. In there. He doesn't, he doesn't really, you know, I, can, I can't, how, how would that even go? I want to hear it. <laughs> Here's some more research. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I need a better Picard than that, but he's wow. I, you know, I can see Patrick Stewart doing that just on a lark. Uh, but I, I would, I, I would love to see Patrick Stewart doing that, you know, just, or I would, you know, next best thing. I would love to see Brent Spiner imitating Patrick Stewart doing that. Oh, or, you know, third place Ian McKellen. Have you, by the way, James, have you seen clips of Brent Spiner imitating Patrick Stewart on YouTube. Like he does it at conventions. Sometimes people ask him, it's very funny. He's got, you know, he's got a very monotone, deep Patrick Stewart voice. And then he's like, that's my Patrick Stewart. And then he said, I also have an Ian McKellen. You want to hear it? And then he does the exact same voice. Yeah, I love Brent Spiner. He's great. <laughs> yes, I have seen yeah. some fun of Fun times, fun times. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. 
And so anyway, getting back to this program that (laughs) we ostensibly have dedicated a podcast to. Oh, yeah. So we see Jean-Luc Picard beaming up to a strange ship. And it is, in fact, the ship that Rios runs and owns and operates, presumably. Presumably, he is an owner-operator of this ship. He's an entrepreneur. And so uh, he is greeted at the transporter pad by an unknown gentleman who seems very cultured and, and very eager to see him, who escorts him in to meet Captain Rios, who we encounter first sitting in a command chair with a giant hunk of metal sticking out of his shoulder, bleeding profusely. Now, James, I did not have time to look this up, so I'm just going by by my eye, and I'm not real good at faces, unfortunately. Was the gentleman who escorts Picard into the room, who we find out is the EMH, the emergency medical hologram for the ship, was he played by the same actor that played Rios? Yeah, I thought so. James is nodding, by the way. He is nodding in the affirmative. Uh, yes, I thought so. But again, I didn't want to assume and I'm not good with faces. So that's why I wanted to ask. So anyway, the EMH looks exactly like Rios, except he seems much better behaved. And so he uh, he gets sassed. Rios sasses him a bit while he's trying to tend to Rios's wound. And uh, eventually he takes the hunk of shrapnel out of the shoulder. We never find out how he got it, but he he takes it out and Rios very unceremoniously dismisses him. End program. So we come to find out that Rios is an ex-Starfleet officer. He had some kind of mysterious thing happen in his past where some horrible, horrible fate befell his ship that was so bad that Starfleet decided to scrub the entire ship from its records, which, I mean, sounds more Section 31 than Starfleet, but as we've kind of established, Starfleet ain't what she used to be. Anyway, so Picard susses out he's ex-Starfleet and that that is why his ship is in such great condition because as much as he professes to hate Starfleet now and not care about Picard being Starfleet and not trust Picard because he's ex Starfleet, Picard says, you're still Starfleet through and through. I can read you like a book. And, uh, the, the one thing, the one thing I noticed more than anything else about this scene that was exposition heavy, but in light of our conversation last week about Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard sat down in a chair talking to Rios. From the moment he stepped on that ship, he seemed incredibly at ease. Like, he seemed like he was at home there. He was back to being his old self. He was confident. He was in control. He was the Jean-Luc Picard of old. So maybe it's just something about space. He needed to get back up there. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And um, they, they alluded to that, too. And Loris even mentioned that too. I'm not sure if I'm sorry if I'm skipping ahead of because uh, we'll get that, there, but it's yeah, fine. That 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 confused me with the with the uh, with 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 the sweeps and the cutting back and forth and all that. So it was uh, I need to watch that episode a couple more times to to understand what's going on. But yes, exactly. They 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 allude to that, and I did like the fact that he purposely made sure he Captain Admiral or Admiral Picard did not sit in the captain's chair. Also. Yeah, that was a thing. He 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 walked onto the bridge, he looked at it, and then he decided to sit at one of the consoles. 
which, you know, was a nice touch. I will give you that. And I also agree with you. The editors definitely feel like they need to earn their keep and and make themselves known in this series for some reason. It's an interesting narrative choice. Honestly, though, James, I know you haven't seen Discovery. The editing on this show, the the flashy edits on this show are 10 times better than the nonsensical flashy edits and camera work that they do on Discovery. So, you know, let's let's be happy with what we have. Okay, thank you. I'll keep that in mind. Anyway, we we go back to Raffi and she's clearly intently researching something and she discovers that there is a quantum fingerprinting on FreeCloud. What does that mean? I have no idea, but it's significant because the camera zooms in on the text and her eyes go really serious and very, very intent on what she's reading. And then we see like some kind of website that looks like a gambling pop-up and it's an ad for FreeCloud. So one assumes that FreeCloud is a gambling planet. I don't know, like maybe, maybe Risa has a sister planet that's devoted to pleasures of a different kind or not. I don't know, but whatever. Anyway, back up to the ship and Jean-Luc Picard has left and Rios is, is reading by himself and he is greeted by the ENH, the emergency navigational hologram. And he sasses him to, <laughs> he tells him all about how great Picard is. I can't believe you got to meet this guy, the great Picard, the guy who is the primary point of contact for the Q, the guy who saved us from the Borg, which is a little bit of revisionist history, but fine. I guess that's, I, I can see. Anyway, the, he talks up all these incredible things that Picard has done. He he got to work with Spock. He's a legend, this guy. And Rios doesn't want to hear it. He's like, yeah, they're all the same. I know this guy. I don't care. And, uh, you know, it's clear that Rios is being tortured by something emotionally tortured by something, something deep and dark in his past. At some point, this, this, I mean, I guess we're going to hear about it. Maybe we won't, but I presume we'll find out more about his backstory down the line. But it seems like whatever horrible fate befell his ship started with the captain because he talks about watching his great captain. He already served under a great captain and he watched that captain's brains get splattered against a bulkhead. So, you know, he's got some issues there that maybe... <laughs> Maybe he'll need to work out before he can truly embrace Jean-Luc Picard, which you know he will do by the end of the season, because we all know where this is going. But uh, for now, he's not very trusting of his new captain. Actually, no, he's the captain. Picard is just along for the ride at this point. Here, James, here's my hot take. Here's my, my very controversial guess for the direction of this season. By the end of the season... Picard will have assembled this crew of misfits and they will make him the captain of the ship for whatever adventures they encounter in season two. Write it down. That's that's my okay. very controversial hot take. All right, man. You're really going out on a limb on that. One. I know. I really am. It's it's uh, oh, it's I know. I know it's far fetched, but that's where I'm going. How can you even think that? I know. I know. <laughs> Um, but before we get to that inevitability, we go back to just outside of Chateau Picard, where 
Jean-Luc Picard is standing in front of his door with a bag, like a duffel bag over his shoulder, staring up at the stars. And Laris is there. And they wax poetic about how he's going to miss the chateau, but he has to go off and have his adventures. And she says something that I'm sure was written for the trailers. <laughs> she says, I suppose you always had one eye on the stars. <laughs> Which, I mean, I get it. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a reach that somebody would say that conversationally, but whatever. I, it, is, it is true enough. And that is, I believe, what you were alluding to earlier. Yes. So we go back to the Borg cube and we get a very brief scene of Soji once again trying to break through to this Ramda woman. She says something in Romulan and then there's some cryptic exchange and something about Romulan houses like classic Romulan houses having fake front doors or something. And she has to go behind her and ask a question. Like we're in a bad spy movie. I don't know. There's it's, it's honestly, James, this was my least favorite part of this episode. This is the part where I was like, I get that they're setting something up, but uh, no, just move on. Just move on. So fortunately we do move on back to the Chateau. Jabon, being the the good friend that he is, is packing Picard a little sack lunch with French <laughs> breads and cheeses and and you know just things that he's going to want to take with him for the journey, like like he's his mommy or something. Here you go, here you go, Johnny. Go go have fun with your friends. Go off on your little adventures. And unfortunately, that scene, which is a little rather cute, is cut very short by a hail of gunfire as they are immediately besieged by one of the Romulan death squads. And James, I have to tell you, I love the thing I loved about this scene was how effortlessly and completely Laris and Jabon were able to mess up these guys. Like the, they, they didn't have disruptor rifles and they didn't have the drop on the other guys. They didn't have these advantages. They just walked up to them and completely dismantled <laughs> these commandos. And even Picard got in on the action, which was kind of fun. He got knocked over a table, which was unfortunate. But fortunately, the table had a disruptor <laughs> hidden underneath it, which he was able to whip out and shoot a dude. <laughs> and uh, it was great. And honestly, I credit the writers and the producers and the actors for one thing in particular. When I was watching this scene... I didn't realize until this scene just how attached I had become to Laris and Jabon. It's kind of the Obi-Wan Kenobi thing in Star Wars. They had very little screen time compared to some of the other characters, but they're just such great characters that I really kind of had my heart in my throat watching this scene worried that they were going to kill them off, especially since we know Picard's about to go on his adventure and it doesn't look like they're going to come. So, you know... Just having having one more big loss or two more big losses on his plate could be something that they would do to set up his like, I don't know, vengeance tour twenty three ninety nine. But fortunately, they didn't do that. They you know, the, everybody was fine. And I was really happy about that. And if this is the last we see of Loris and Jay Bon, or at least for a while, I'm going to be really sad about that because I like those characters very much. Absolutely. I completely agree. And 
uh, yeah, that 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 in a series that we're so familiar with, and yet we're just learning about too. On the other hand, it, it's really remarkable how they could pull that off. That we care so much about characters we really don't know very much about. But I completely 100% agree on you on everything you just said. And in fact, one of the Death Squad commandos, the last of the Death Squad commandos, almost did that very thing. He did get the drop on them and he had Laris right in his sights. And then he is taken out by a disruptor blast from off screen that we find was fired by Dr. Agnes Girardi, who just wanders in to save the day, seemingly. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's fun. That's a fun little scene because it's your classic. I don't know what I'm doing, but I just saved you. And now I'm horrified at the fact that I shot this gun and she clung to the desperate hope that maybe it was on stun. And Laris casually tells her, yeah, Romulan disruptors don't have a stun setting. He did. <laughs> and, uh, she's horrified, but, um, so, so she, she is there for reasons uh, actually, the reasons are to tell them that the Commodore came to her and, you know, wanted to know about Picard. But we'll get into that more in a minute. The one thing before we move on, James, the one thing that I noticed as I was writing out my notes, I don't know if this is going to be a thing. It, it may be coincidence. It may not be. I'm eager to see if it winds up playing into anything. James. Her name is Dr. Agnes Gerati. Put her initials together. What does that spell? Oh, Dodge. Wow. I never made the connection. I, I didn't either until I was writing it down. That's... I don't that like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we come to find that Bruce Maddox uh, named Dodge as an homage to her. Maybe we come to find out that, you know, she was more involved in all this than she's letting on. Maybe we come to find out that she, in fact, herself is one of these synths. I find that last one to be not entirely likely, but it's possible. You know, it, it, she, she could be the prototype. We will see. I don't know. I have no idea if we if we find out that she has a twin sister somewhere, we will know. But until that time, it's it's just something to think about. So following that little bit of business, they took one of them alive. They wake up the Romulan who they're holding captive and they, you know, as Dr. Gerardi is explaining her business with the Commodore, they wake him up and they start to interrogate. So. Before we get to see how that unfolds, which is the interesting thing, we are treated to another scene with Soji talking weird nonsense words to Ramda. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's cryptic and weird. And I just, so this, this whole thing culminates in what I think is supposed to be some kind of insightful revelation, but was just didn't work. Basically, we find out that the Romulans don't have a word for mythology and what they call mythology, that the word that they use for mythology is news. And Soji 
treats this as some kind of revelation where, oh, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I love that. I'm trying to create this mythological framework for the ex-Borg to use in order to help them recover from their trauma and to use as a shared point of reference. And it's like the news of the day, which makes no sense. I don't like maybe maybe I'm just dumb. I did not get what they were going for. Like, I thought that was a real stretch and I didn't think it worked. Did you pick up on something I missed, James? The only thing I thought was that uh, that was Ramda's interpretation of uh, mythology, that she considered it that it was fact and it was news. Obviously, for whatever reason, they made it look like that Romulans were the only species that weren't able to be adapted by the Borg. And that's why things went a little bit wrong. That's my interpretation. I don't know if that's fact, but I just think it, it maybe it's just Ramda that considers that. But yeah, I, I wanted a lot more out of that character. I wanted a lot more answers out of it. And, and I was really quite taken aback as well by uh, Dr. Ash's uh, um, response to that, that she got all excited and she said she loved it, that it was that 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 Ramda referred to mythology as news. Yeah. I don't, uh, OK, well. Maybe, I mean, maybe we will see more of that character. down. Well, we'll definitely see more of that character down the line in this episode, but briefly. But maybe in future episodes, we'll get a little more out of her because she seems like a, a loose thread that they're not finished pulling on. But that's for later. For now, we get to go back to the interrogation and have a little action. So he uh, he, he won't talk. They keep asking the prisoner questions back at Chateau Picard. They, they, they keep asking him questions. He won't talk. And there was actually a cute little thing that they did. I don't know if you picked up on it. I think what they were trying to imply. Now, go back with me. Go back to the original series of Star Trek. You remember that the makeup in Star Trek back then was rather different from how it evolved in the next generation and, you know, beyond. They did the same thing with the Klingons and they tried... In Enterprise, they really tried hard to justify why the Klingons wound up looking so differently. But they, I think they were trying to do a little bit of sleight of hand in that same vein here. Because in the original series, the Romulans had weird eyebrows and smooth foreheads. In The Next Generation, the Romulans had weird eyebrows, although not nearly as pronounced as the original series. And they had these kind of ridges in their foreheads. Not as pronounced as the Klingon ridges, but... They definitely had some kind of indentations or, or protrusions, depending on how you look at it, in their foreheads. Now, in Picard, it looks like Laris is smooth foreheaded and, <laughs> and Jeban has a little bit of the bumps. So what it seems like they are implying is that the, the ridged forehead Romulans are northern Romulans. Right. They they are the northerners. And the smooth-headed Romulans are, by implication, the southerners. So it's it's just one of those, no, it wasn't they 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 are all Romulans. We just segregate our crews by geographic location, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's that's something to think about and something that I did think about when I was trying to ignore the next scene, which was back to the interview with Ramda. She remembers 
She remembers Soji from tomorrow, James. What sort of meaningless double talk is this? Yeah, that really, I was completely, thoroughly confused. It's deep and cryptic and meaningful. And what are you talking about? The whole time-space continuum, my head almost exploded. Even Q would pop in on this conversation and say, this is unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, where's Doc Brown when you need him? I, I, I just, I don't, I don't. Anyway, um, Soji, we find out Soji actually knows intimate details about Ramda's assimilation. The ship that she was on, what her role was, that she was one of the last Romulans assimilated by the Borg. You know, she, she knows all kinds of things that she shouldn't know. And that's a little weird. And we also get just a, the tiniest tidbit of what happened to the Borg. Somehow or other, there was a submatrix collapse, which is why the entire Borg cube, I guess, well, we don't know what happened, but some kind of catastrophic cascade event seemed to happen that shut down all the Borg and put it in its current situation. I guess that's another thing that will unfold as the series unfolds. So I'm willing to wait for that. That's a mystery that I'm willing to wait for. You know, I remember you from tomorrow that I can do without. <laughs> but then we get some real action, James. This, yeah. is, this, is, this is another one of those scenes that, that the editors like to show off with. Needlessly complicated. This is one of those intercut scenes like last week that... Happened one, you know, back and forth, but I'm going to lay out sequentially for everybody's sanity. So, uh, it's, so, so the intercut drama plays out thusly. Why all the drama? I, quick sidebar, I used to do theater in college, and I remember one day, this is, this is funnier in my head than it actually is, but I remember one day people were getting all heated as actors can do very, very serious and very attached about nothing. And uh, this this one young lady who was really, she was mainly uh, part of a band member. Uh, she, she was just kind of there for a rehearsal witness. She said, what's with all the drama? <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, because it's theater and, and drama and I, I, mm, that's pointless. Anyway, so... <laughs> Ramda, I like inside jokes. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll keep that one. It's not really worth keeping, but maybe I'll do it anyway because I'm stubborn. I like it. So what's with all the drama? So Ramda, <laughs> Ramda, uh, you can tell, James, you can tell that things are about to get very dramatic because the music changes. It gets very... <laughs> the pitch of the music gets up and it's, it's very... So Ramda asks Soji very pointedly out of nowhere, which sister are you? The one who lives or the one who dies? And, and, and she has these weird tarot card looking things that she's been laying out over the course of this interview. And one of them, the one that she grabs, the one on top, looks like it has kind of caricatures of two like girls on it facing each other. And um, she she grabs the disruptor out of a guard's holster and she says, you are the destroyer. And then she actually tries to kill herself. She see now this is what I was talking about foreshadowing earlier in the episode. She puts the disruptor to her temple exactly the same way as the synth did 
right after he was reprogrammed and uh, after he brought down the defense grid on Mars. And so I, I think there's something there. There's a connection there that we're meant to see, even though we don't know what it is yet. And she's about to pull the trigger. And then Soji, with super speed, with android super speed, runs and disarms her before she can do the deed. Exactly. And there's also something else that I, I thought I caught. And uh, I, I believe the timestamp is around 3321 into the episode, if you're watching it online. Please. I thought that when Ramda takes her hand back after touching Dr. Asha, that Soji's badge turns green. Now, again, I went back a couple of times. I, I want to go back a few more times, but wasn't that bad? Like if, if, if the badge turns green, that means you run like something. Yeah, we, we uh, in last week's episode, when Dr. Cabbage Head was getting her introduction of exposition, we were told that when your badge glows green, the implication is that the Borg are basically waking up and suddenly becoming dangerous. The, the XBs are becoming dangerous. And at that point you should run. So if I, and I, I miss this, but if that did in fact happen and I'm not questioning you, what that probably means is that Ramda was getting dangerous in some way and her Borg was coming out. Or it could be something to do with uh, Soji. We don't know. I mean, I didn't. We don't know. But you know, it's probable that it was the it was reacting to Ramda. But well, I'm sure uh, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, it was just something that um, again uh, I'd like to look out again and listener, if if you know that for a fact, let us know. But in the meantime, I, I want to just go explore that again. It makes sense too because, as you said that uh, Soji reacted so quickly and, and went into her Matrix-like uh, motions to save Ramda from blowing her own head off for whatever reason. Whoa. Exactly. So what you're saying is that in times of extreme emotional duress, she knows Kung Fu. <laughs> and that is no spoon. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Someday, so, someday we will go through one of these podcasts without referencing Keanu Reeves. Yeah, what fun would that be? It's a really, it's more of an aspirational goal than something I think will actually happen. <laughs> we didn't bring up John Wick. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, now we, we go back to the more fun half of this intercut. So back in Chateau Picard, the captive finally starts talking. He says, Soji, he doesn't say her name, but he says, she isn't who you think she is. Very ominously. She's the destroyer, which is what Ramda said. And in fact, he said it immediately after. So it's, it's, it's not, they're not subtle. I know. <laughs> yeah, they definitely ram it. And again, that's my theory on the uh, the Star Trek fans. We get it. But for the non-traditional Star Trek fans, maybe they need to be spoon fed a little bit. Like, I, I respect that. But sometimes I need a lozenge after they ram all this stuff down our throats. Fair enough. But anyway, um, so she's the destroyer. And uh, he he insults. Picard in Romulan, which elicits a punch from Laris. I love, I love, mm, such great characters, really. 
Anyway, that knocks him over in his chair, and I guess he decides that the interrogation is over at that point because he bites down on one of those acid suicide capsules and he spits acid in their direction. It mostly misses them, although it catches Jay Bond's jacket. I'm sorry, it was a nice jacket. But uh, all things considered, could have been worse. And then he uh, he kind of dissolves in a pool of, I guess, acid and, and just smoke like he one one thing i saw one theory that i saw on these capsules that i read is that they interact with the romulan's blood and turn the blood itself into acid so you know it is green so that is a valid theory so i guess that's what i'm going with too although it's not mine i want to give credit to i don't know who suggested it somebody on the internet but I want to give credit to random internet person. I think it's a good valid theory. So anyway, the Romulan captive dissolves into commercial. Or if you're watching it commercial free, into the next scene. And what scene is that? Well, James, I'm glad you didn't ask. That scene is Soji in what seems to be her favorite place, in bed. Mm. And she uh, she's on the phone with her mommy, or who she believes is her mommy anyway, the same woman that Dodge called in the first episode. She, she gets on the, uh, it's some kind of V-shaped communication, holographic communication device. She calls up mom, and speaking of Dodge, she wants to know if Dodge is okay. I guess the encounter with Ramda really spooked her. She wants to know if Dodge is okay, and her quote-unquote mother explains, of course Dodge is fine, I just talked to her. Did you know she wants to get a dog? I don't think she should get a dog. Dogs are not right for her, but you know her, she wants to get a dog. And as she's speaking, Soji almost immediately passes out and falls unconscious. So I guess this is kind of the same hypnotic trance thing that we saw happen to Dodge in the first episode. So whoever this woman actually is, she has some kind of weird mental manipulation kill switch that she can use to end awkward conversations. And in fact, Soji shortly thereafter wakes up and she looks a little confused as to what happened, but she doesn't have very long to ponder that because Narek comes in. And he, he wants to know if she's okay, but he also wants to know how she knew all those weird intimate details about Ramda. I guess word gets around on a Romulan Borg cube. That's a weird sentence. But anyway, um, so, you know, you know, those Romulans, they know everything about everything. And so she swears she doesn't know. She must have read it somewhere in one of those reports that she scoured about the history of the Borg cube. And so he has to tell her something, something very, very confidential and secret. James, he may be falling in love with her. (laughs) I wish he'd wash his hair first, but okay, that's nice. And then of course we segue into some very saucy times and then cut to the scene after that. Mm where we once again see Narek kind of, I guess, doing the walk of shame, although he doesn't look very shameful. He just kind of looks bored, which seems to be his default state. And uh, he's grabbed by Rizzo, his sister. Aw, reunited, and it feels so weird. 
because they really do have a weird sibling relationship. There's like there's like Lannister vibes going on there. I don't know what I I don't know what their deal is, but they they are they have a very strange intimate relationship between the two of them. I have a sister and that's weird. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Absolutely. But so she's back. She looks like a Romulan again. And so I I don't know if that means she's not going back to Starfleet security or if she doesn't want to blow her cover by uh, and, and she thinks that she won't be recognized on the Borg cube if she makes her ears pointy. But I don't know. It's a weird surgery to have just for a quick little visit and chat. So maybe she is gone for I I don't know. I don't even care. Honestly, <laughs> I want to I want to care about this, but it's too much cloak and dagger nonsense and and the 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 suspense and the interplay, the cute dialogue. It's it's just too much for me. I I want to care. I really do, but I can't bring myself to. I'm sorry. Did, did maybe do you do you have a different opinion on this scene, James? Maybe, maybe I'm being too hard on it. No, again, uh, as Gary and I always say at the top of this podcast, that we are lifelong Star Trek fans, and you know, Gary loved the Next Generation, and and I was familiar with the original series, and we both kept up with it, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and the movies. So we know what Star Trek is all about. We get it, and that's what we love about it. And this series is really teetering on keeping us diehard Star Trek fans, the Trekkies, the Trekkers, and satisfying the new fan too. Obviously with CBS All Access, you have to pay for it, so they, they want to make it as uh, entertaining as possible. So uh, how they balance that, okay, but I agree with you 100%. It was really, really very awkward and strange. I don't know what's going on with the Romulan families, but if I had a sister, I definitely wouldn't talk to her or, or <laughs> I hope she wouldn't talk to me that way or imply certain things. Well, and, I thought you were going to um, say if you had a sister, you wouldn't talk to her after watching that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would. Actually. I need a minute. I'm sorry. Can I call you back? <laughs> exactly. So I agree with you 100%. Uh, listener, if you disagree, let us know. If you agree, either way, we'd love to hear from your point of view as well. So they spend the balance of that scene antagonizing each other sensually. And mm. uh, I need a shower. Yeah. But fortunately... That's over fairly quickly, and we remove ourselves back to Chateau Picard, where Dr. Agnes Girardi explains that she wants to come. I want to come. You're going on an adventure, and I want to come. I want to go. I want to go. Reminds actually, <laughs> it, it actually reminds me uh, in a weird way of the Next Generation episode Rascals, where ah. they where. Picard and Guinan and Keiko and Ensign Rowe all get turned into children via a weird transporter accident. And Picard has to like put on a weird distraction for the Ferengi who have taken control of the Enterprise. That was really far-fetched also, but that's neither here nor there. And he he kind of did his best like Veruca Salt impression from uh, Willy Wonka and uh, I want to see my father. I want to see him now. Now, 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 now. And so it reminded me, my silly impression of her reminded me of that. I, anyway, so she wants to come on the trip. Yeah. 
She wants to come. And before Picard can really respond, he gets a call from Rios on the comms, who informs him that things are getting hot in Le Bar. France. And it, there's a, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> he's about to have a hot time in the old town tonight. And they need to skedaddle now. And uh, he has it on good authority that some stuff is about to go down. So they beam up to the ship, Picard and Gerardi, who is coming because she's the foremost robotics expert in the Federation. And, uh, you know, he might find that skill valuable. So they both beam up to the ship, which, correct me if I'm wrong, still hasn't been named. You're right. It does not have a name. But I do love the look of it. And we'll get into that. In the ship is nameless. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Soji can talk to it. <laughs> the SS no name. Uh, so they beam up to the ship the and discover no that uh, they, they friendly face. Rafi's here. It's a party. Yay. And so she she is there. Rafi is there because she found Bruce Maddox. He's on free cloud and she's hitching a ride there. Why? None you bidneth. <laughs> Uh, she she will not say. she will not disclose the reason for her desire to tag along. But, you know, OK, sure. Rafi, you're always welcome on an adventure. And uh, so Rios fed up with all this banter and impatience wants to know, can we just go? And Picard indicates that he is amenable to that and stands next to the captain's chair in a very uh, very Picard-esque hero pose and kicks off their journey by saying, Engage. And we, we warp out to the, the melodic tones of Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. As if those two things weren't exciting enough and the payoff that we all love as a Van Halen fan, I couldn't help but notice that Captain Rio's ship had a very Van Halen-esque look to it, where it was red and I saw some white stripes on it. I didn't see any black stripes, a la Eddie Van Halen's famous guitar, the Frankenstrat and, and the 5150, but it, it was similar enough, so I was very excited about that. So uh, three things just really got me very, very happy at the end of that, uh, that, that episode. Yeah, the ship design is actually pretty cool. I guess that's the ship that we're expecting to you know have be the ship for this series I mean, oh if it could be the that. ncc 5150 i'd be so happy <laughs> <laughs> um I, I have to say design wise it reminded me a little bit of battlestar galactica yes and good point uh, here's uh, this this is probably a reach but i will say that Battlestar Galactica was executive produced by Ronald D. Moore, who was one of the producers on Deep Space Nine. It all comes full circle. Well uh -huh. done, America. Circle of life, oh. James. Well yeah. done, Gary. Um, yeah, so uh, that's and that, that's the end of the episode. <laughs> and uh, so then, of course, we get the next time on Star Trek Picard, which they don't actually say. I just, you know. It's my deal. And so on the next episode, what we seem to have to look forward to is Picard and company find themselves on a strange planet. And he is trying to recruit the warrior guy that we saw in the series trailers. And I had postulated that he was a Vulcan. Now I'm revising that up to Romulan because the planet, there, there is a sign that says Romulans only. And seeing, you know, getting a close look at him, he does have a very Romulan look to him. So 
I'm going to assume he's a, he's a Romulan, but uh, we, we get some, some tense scenes and some fighty fight moments. And uh, one, one very, so this, this is going back to the previews always lie thing that we talked about in the first episode. So take this with a grain of salt, but we see Soji very briefly in a, a flash in the previews. And then the very next thing we see is a shot of a bird in flight. It's several birds, but one in particular, a bird in flight with his wings outstretched. Now, what it looked like to me, the first thing that jumped out at me when I saw that, and I went back and I freeze framed it. The first thing that jumped out at me from that was the episode where Data starts to dream and he sees the blackbird or the crow or whatever that bird was. The second thing that jumped out at me was that it was also very reminiscent of the the kind of uh, bird of prey, not, you know, little b, little p, bird of prey that is on the crest of the Romulan Empire. So, you know, either way, honestly, I'm okay with either of those as symbolism. And maybe maybe it'll be both. Who knows? But I'm kind of inclined to think that it's the latter because the last thing we see in the trailer is a shot, the briefest, briefest of glimpses of the USS Van Halen fleeing (laughs) from a Romulan bird of prey. So, you know, that in and of itself could wind up being foreshadowing for that. And I'm actually kind of excited. I'm, it depends on how it plays out, how the story winds up playing out, but I think next episode could be pretty good. Yes, uh, definitely. The first three have done a really great job of laying down the groundwork and seeing where the series is going to go, explaining the whole Romulan stuff and and the the Borg stuff, the connection and and the the, the synth. So I agree. So far, so good. Seems like it's all leading up to whatever they have planned. And I'm, I'm on board and very excited. And I can't wait for the next episode as well. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes. But before we see the next episode, James, it is time for me to ask you, sir, what did you think of this episode? Analysis. Time-wise, I thought it went pretty quick. Uh, Again, it's kind of a good, I guess, um, segue episode to line things up on where the rest of the series is going to go and leading up to uh, other characters that we know we are going to see and we're familiar with. I, I, I love the, the introduction of, of learning more about Rafi. I think she's a great character. That that's I'm, I'm fascinated. I like the fact that she's still loyal and it's coming around and it definitely makes sense why she'd be bitter and humiliated and all that. So redemption, I, I love those stories as well. She wasn't too thrilled of having Dr. Uh, Girardi on board. So I like that too, the, 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 the careful uh, speculation first officer instincts kicking in and yes uh, you know the the, the, the captain uh, rios i uh, or pilot yeah captain rios uh, i i'm really excited about it. i like him a lot thought he came out with a big splash interesting with the the book that they had floating around there the tragic sense of life that was a nice little um just real quick background on that book from what i understand about it it's about uh life and we all know we're going to die and all that so there's a little bit of symbolism in that but yes of course the the van halen like starship i was very excited to see all in all to answer your question in a very very long-winded way i thought it was a great episode fits in perfectly with the series i'm very happy with the series so far and uh, cannot wait for the rest of it to unfold long-winded james how dare you you know on this podcast we are nothing but terse and on point 
at all times. <laughs> at all times, James. <sighs> sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. I remember when you said that tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Please, I don't want to call that back. I never want to call that back again. I'm sure we won't be so lucky. And I think I kind of made my points with that, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But I would say for myself, those scenes notwithstanding... I really enjoyed this episode. I, you know, I talked about Loris and Jay Bond as characters. I'm excited that we're finally on a ship, as I'm sure many other people are as well. I, you know, I, I the Borg thing is, I'm, I'm really trying with that. I will stay with it because I really do enjoy the series so far. If anything, I think that is the weakest of the plot lines so far. I don't find Soji to be a very compelling character. And I don't find Narek either to be very compelling. I think Rizzo is a little bit of a ham. I assume that's not her real name, but whatever. That's what we know her as at the moment. The, the I don't know, the Commodore stuff is a little unnecessarily mustache twirling, but I don't expect to see too much of her either. Perfect description. Yeah, it's like, we'll, we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. I'll give it a little bit of rope because what choice do I have, honestly? It's not like I can pick and choose what scenes I want to watch in this show. It is not for you to set the standards by which we should be judged. Listener, I'm sure you have thoughts on the episode and the series at large. We put out some kind of crazy theories here on this episode, and you may have some of your own. So we want to know what you think. Please, please feel free to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. You can get us email, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are Vintage Picard. Just you know, hit us up and tell us what you think. And we can open a conversation about that. We can open a dialogue. We want to hear from you. What we also want to do, what we will ask you to please, will I will get on my knee. Well, I won't get on my knees because then I will be far from the microphone and you will hardly be able to hear me. But I am figuratively on my knees here beseeching you. We are a brand new podcast and we want to grow this thing because, you know, we, we really we love doing this and we hope you are enjoying it. Please tell your friends, please tell your enemies, please tell complete strangers about Vintage Picard and subscribe if you haven't already. We're on a whole bunch of platforms. If you use a podcatcher that we are not on, please let us know and we will try to get on there. So we want you to subscribe. We want you to be a part of this show and we really want everybody to be in it for the long haul. So for that haul, we look forward to the future, but for now, We bid you safe journeys. We will catch you next week for another episode of Vintage Picard. But until then, thanks, everybody. Excuse me again. Sorry. No problem. That's why we have a dump button. Well, we don't, but I'll cut it out. Well, you, yeah. (laughs) I am become the dump button. (laughs) Destroyer of pod. I'm going to take a great big dump all over that burp. Oh, goodness.